Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting harvesting happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show where you will learn about illuminating stories of mental health misdiagnoses. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Fay. She is an author and activist. Her writing appears in many publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Time Magazine, among many others. She's currently on the faculty of Northwestern University and DePaul University and is the founder of Pathological, the movement, a public awareness campaign devoted to making people aware of the unreliability and invalidity of DSM diagnoses and the dangers of identifying with an unproven mental illness. Sarah Fay holds an MFA in creative writing and a PhD in English literature studies. She is the author of Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. And Sarah is in the house. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I am super excited to have this conversation. You and I had a I would say a a pretty hilarious warm up to this conversation. And I'd love to just jump right in and talk about the DSM and how these diagnoses, which is a sort of a Bible, a four or five inch thick book of psychiatric and psychological conditions are even invented. So the DSM has been with us for 50 years. So nearly half a century. It started in 1952 and It started with 128 categories in which essentially medical professionals would use those diagnoses to communicate with each other. The number of diagnoses has since swelled to 541, and the number of pages of the DSM has swelled as well. But the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM for short, is the book from which all our mental health diagnoses come. I didn't know that they come from a book uh, <laughs> until I started my research. It didn't, it didn't dawn on me. I just assumed they were the result of scientific discoveries and medical research and you know things that were akin to research on diabetes or research on cancer. But they come from a book and they are essentially the opinions and theories of the authors of that book and nothing more. And that came as a shock, to say the least. But I'm, I'm not the one who actually said that they were invented. So the former director of the National Institute for Mental Health, the NIMH, Thomas Insel, was the one who said that they are constructed. And Stephen Hyman, also a former director of the NIMH, said that the DSM is an absolute scientific nightmare and that DSM diagnoses are fictive diagnostic categories. So when I started reading what the most prominent 
psychiatrists and researchers in our country were saying about the DSM, it shocked me, mainly because I had had six DSM diagnoses by that point. Whoa. Hence uh, your true story of six misdiagnoses. And I call them misdiagnoses because a misdiagnosis by definition is a diagnosis that's inaccurate, incomplete, or incorrect. And all DSM diagnoses, with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders, are misdiagnoses because they can't be accurate, correct, or complete, mainly because they aren't scientifically valid. So what that means is they don't exist outside of self-reported symptoms and the clinician diagnosing them. They have no external reality, no objective marker by which we can measure them. There's nothing that could have proven that I had any of the six diagnoses I was given. Anorexia, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, and then finally bipolar disorder. No test could have told me, yes, these clinicians that are giving me these diagnoses are correct. So they're scientifically invalid. They're also largely unreliable. And what that means is that in research settings, which are usually more generous than in clinical practice, two clinicians most of the time can't diagnose the same patient with the same disorder using diagnostic criteria from the DSM. So essentially, they're kind of throwing spaghetti at a wall when they give you a diagnosis. And I do think it's well-intended. I think the majority of, of clinicians out there really do want to help. We're just using a very imperfect system. And it's a very dynamic condition. I mean, what you present as mm. one day might change six months or a year or years from now. And if you were to respond to treatment to those things, you might say, okay, you've hit it. But oftentimes people do not respond. And the question there is, are you not responding to treatment because the treatment isn't working? Or are you not re responding to treatment because the diagnosis is incorrect? Or, and this is what's not really spoken about, is are you not responding to treatment because we don't know enough about these diagnoses that have been essentially invented by groups of psychiatrists and psychologists, members of the American Psychiatric Association for the most part, that they don't hold, they aren't substantive enough to really hold a diagnosis? That's the question. Yeah. And it's a good question. I mean, I have a family member who is a clinical psychologist whose name shall remain nameless because I, he participates in DSM reviews. And they're often like conventions, right? Or conferences where people sit around the table and they chew the fat over a chapter. Exactly. And there's a great story, although it's not great in that sense, but a, a remarkable story and a very disturbing story. But when asked, uh, Robert Spitzer, who was really the architect of the DSM-3, that was in 1980. And that edition of the DSM really changed, we could say the world, but certainly the mental health system. It was the edition that really tried to move us in the direction of mental disorders. So mental means mind. Mind disorders are brain diseases without having any proof of that. But they basically said, yeah, eventually we're going to figure out that these are in fact brain diseases. So of the you know matter that is the brain and then diseases means that you can say what the causes, symptoms, prognosis and treatment should be, which we can't do with 
the majority of DSM diagnoses with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders. But Spitzer, when they were putting the DSM-3 together, there's a famous story that he was asked why the criteria for major depressive disorder was a person needs five of nine symptoms. And he said, it was just consensus. We would ask clinicians and researchers, how many symptoms do you think patients ought to have before you give them a diagnosis of depression? And we came up with the arbitrary figure of five because four seem like not enough and six seem like too much. Wow. And we have that. That's our that's our criteria for major depressive disorder today. And let's talk about the percentage of Americans that will receive an unproven DSM diagnosis, because this is astounding. It is. 46% of American adults will receive a DSM diagnosis in their lifetimes, and 20% of American children and teenagers will receive one. That latter statistic, I've read actually that um, teens and young adults, 18 to 25, the statistic that most recently they had, that statistic is actually from, I believe, 2010 or 2015, so it's probably much higher by now. But most recently, 18 to 25, uh, it was 71% said they had been labeled with a diagnosis. 71%. It's astounding. It is astounding. And, <laughs> wow. Where that goes, you know, what's more astounding to me, that wouldn't be a problem. One thing that uh, mental health professionals often will say, there, there are many kind of, you know, reasons or or justifications that are used. And one is, well, you don't argue with the number of people or the percentage of people who get the flu. That's true, but you can actually have objective measures like a thermometer saying you have a fever to say, yes, you have the flu. Um, So that doesn't really hold water. But what troubles me is not the number necessarily, but that they don't know where those diagnoses are coming from and that they're coming from a book and not from data. It's not based on hard data. So I'm thinking about the kids, the, the the young adults, and at that age, at that period of time in one's life, particularly now, right, where everybody has had this lack of physical connection and has been isolated for so long, it is no surprise that people are presenting with mental health challenges. But does that mean it's an illness? That's the other side of it. Is a challenge exactly. the same as an illness? I love that you said that. And also when we were talking before, you used the term depressive episode or anxiety episode. Yes. And to really what's very upsetting to me, and especially because I teach in a university, so I'm around Gen Zs all the time. And I can't tell you the number of students who come to my office to talk about their ADHD brains as if there is such a thing (laughs) or their anxiety. You know, they really believe these diagnoses. They believe that they're biological, which there's no proof that they are. And they believe also that they're chronic. And that's very disturbing to me because there's no proof that any of them are chronic. And we could be referring to these as episodes. One thing I call for in the book and one thing I call for in my public awareness campaign is an exit strategy, that everyone who sees a mental health professional should be given an exit strategy for when their symptoms abate, not if, but when. Imagine the hope you're giving someone by saying, yeah. this could get better. This You could come out of this and be fine. A friend of mine, her daughter, her 15-year-old daughter was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and put on an SSRI, an antidepressant. And we were walking and she said, I just don't know what I'm going to do. She's going to have this for the rest of her life. She's not going to be able to go to college. I said, no, she's not. I said, there's no proof 
that that will happen. And my friend was shocked. She couldn't believe it. So whether we're being told that they're chronic or we're just led to believe it or the misinformation on the Internet is making us, you know, is sort of reifying that belief. It's it's just simply not true. And and to get an exit strategy from all clinicians that hope. I mean, imagine if we told cancer patients, you'll always have cancer. What would the recovery rate be? So we should be doing at least the same thing for mental health diagnoses. And, you know, when we speak of mental health diagnoses, in many cases, the response that we have to a set of events or a singular event is appropriately situational. Yes. The DSM, one of the main flaws with it, we could pick it apart in a million different ways, which I do in my book, Pathological, but I don't really pick it apart in, in a million different ways. But <laughs> you I tell, can, though. It's okay. <laughs> I tell the story of my discovery about the DSM and what it really is after I was already diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was six diagnoses in and was suicidal at that point. So I just tell that story. But it's true. The one thing that it doesn't, none of these diagnoses take into account is context. And that's the real problem because easy diagnoses also allow us not to take the social considerations or social contexts like racial injustice, like economic inequality into account for our mental health, which they have huge effects and trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to continue that point because there is some embedded racism in this process in a way that we might not be aware of. So let's take that pause. We'll we'll be right back. My guest today is Sarah Fay. She is the author of Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. To learn more, please go to sarahfay.org on Twitter at Sarah Fay author on Facebook Ms. Sarah Fay. And on Instagram, you can find Sarah at Sarah Fay Author. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is an actual promise. Just a little minute before we pause. If you're anything like me, happiness is a good hair day. But daily living takes its toll on hair, including thinning that can be caused by several factors like metabolism, stress, habits, genetics, aging, and even hormonal shifts like menopause. That's why I'm a huge fan of Nutrafol, because it goes beyond genetics to target the factors that impact hair growth. Tens of millions of Americans experience thinning hair. It's common, even normal, and not widely talked about. If you're anything like me, the experience is scary and stressful, which just adds to the problem. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement that's clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage for men and women. A big shout-out of thanks to Nutrafol for helping me grow fuller, healthier, and happier hair from the inside out. Now is the time to have lovelier locks and better well-being with Nutrafol. Start by visiting Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations. Did you know that thinning is different for men and women? Nutrafol has multiple unique formulas that provide exactly what we need based on our biology and age. Every product is physician-formulated using natural, medical-grade ingredients for reliable results that I have experienced firsthand. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors. In clinical studies, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage and 86% of women saw improved growth after six months of use. What I love most about Nutrafol is that in addition to beautiful hair, the ingredients also help me have better sleep, 
stress response, skin, and nails. Who wouldn't want all of that? Join me and millions of others who are celebrating good hair days with Nutrafol. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code HAPPINESS to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code HAPPINESS. Now let's take that pause. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, urge them to seek professional support because good psychological health is vital in achieving a satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your tribe through social media. Find us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook and me at Lisa Kamen on Twitter. And we're back. Continuing the exploration of stories of mental health diagnoses, let's return to the conversation with my guest today, Sarah Fay. I'm talking with Sarah Fay. She is the author of Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. We're talking about mental health labels and how we get the titles and the diagnoses that we get, which seems to be somewhat arbitrary, Sarah, but it's not actually equal in that many of us have the privilege of receiving health care, which may or may not work to our benefit when it comes to mental health. But what about the, the part of the population that truly has the need but no access? Exactly. What my experience in the mental health system lasted for 30 years. So I was first diagnosed at 12 years old. And we talked about seeing life through a lens of diagnosis for teenagers. And I definite, that definitely set the stage for me. It was not strange for me to be in a hospital or to think in terms of emotions as diagnoses. And I want to just say with that, that I have absolute sympathy for parents. My parents went through a terrible time. They were at a loss. They didn't know how to help me. So I, and I think they did everything they could and did everything right. But Going back to that, I also spent a great deal of time in New York City, and I worked as a writer in residence in the New York City public schools. And somehow I would be sent into schools to teach writing, and something pulled me. All of my residencies were suddenly in you know special education classrooms, and particularly with students with severe autism and what they call severe emotional disturbances. And these were in very low-income areas in the South Bronx and South Brooklyn. And I really saw how racist DSM diagnoses can be. And they aren't always, but they can be. So they are, they have been found in studies to be biased against children of color, particularly oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, a very mm -hmm. stigmatizing diagnosis that can in some ways really, and Psychiatrists have one psychiatrist was quoted as saying this that it it's a predictor of criminality and I mean that's Ooh. about as as you can get 
um, as opposed to white children often, and I should say white children, uh, privileged children who receive ADHD diagnosis, which is also distractibility and sometimes behavior disruption. And so that, that one receives a very stigmatized diagnosis and one receives a less stigmatizing diagnosis. And then the DSM has a deeply, well, psychiatry has a deeply racist history. Homosexuality was in the DSM until 1980. To this day, the DSM is transphobic uh, in its diagnoses. And it has, I should say, especially with the new edition that's coming out in March, they are trying to rectify uh, the transphobia in there. And, And I should say, to the American Psychiatric Association has said that they're also trying to rectify with the racism in the DSM to give them credit. And then women, it's also biased against women. Women are the largest users of mental health services. So in many ways, we are very much at risk for the unreliable and invalid diagnoses that we're being given, unless we're being given them with the understanding that they are invalid and largely unreliable. Well, I think that in my experience, the the value of the DSM is to be able to bill for services. It's a starting place, you know, for uh, prescribing therapy and medication or different therapies. It helps people who have insurance get treatment, right, if the insurance company will cover it. But then there's the reality, right, of of you and your provider and what goes on in that room that Mm -hmm. may or may not be accurate. Exactly. And so that the justification for the the most recent edition of the DSM-5, they sort of said, OK, we have no validity. Now, what I'm saying and what Thomas Insull and, and others are saying, psychiatrists are well aware of. Most mental health professionals are well aware of the invalidity and unreliability of the diagnoses they give, but they tend not to admit to it. But the DSM diagnoses You're right in that they would be clinically useful. So the American Psychiatric Association said, yes, they're invalid. Yes, they're unreliable, but they have clinical utility. And that would be true, except that overdiagnosis by definition is giving someone, it's making someone a patient unnecessarily and by doing so inflicting harm. So think of all the people who are being told you have a chronic disorder, it's biological, it's genetic, none of these things are proven. And yet, so they live their whole lives that way, which is what I did for 30 years, was I treated myself as someone who is sick and crazy and broken. And again, I should say, I believe that mental illness is very, very real. I have or had one because they haven't been shown to be chronic I am open to both possibilities that I am cured or maybe I have it chronically. I live, you know, your show is so wonderful and talking about happiness and I've created a life for myself that's very structured. I don't really travel. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't drink caffeine. (laughs) There are certain things that my bodily makeup, my physical makeup and my mental well-being need and I answer to those. So it's not as if I suddenly decided I don't have a diagnosis and that I'm not mentally ill and it's all fake. Not at all. It's absolutely 100% real. I had what I what is considered a serious mental illness. I couldn't live independently for five years. Wow. So there's no, I lived with my mother. She was amazing. And 
yeah, the hero of the book, along with my sister. Um, they, I was very lucky there too, and privileged to have family that that didn't know what was going on, but really just stuck with me as best they could, even though I isolated for a long part of that, for a great part of that time. But this is all just to say, I want to be clear that mental illness is very, very real. I completely identify as someone with a mental illness. I'm proud of it. I want to be an example for others who've been diagnosed with DSM disorders and know, yes, there was something there and you can live not just in recovery, but maybe we can be cured. Who knows? You know, I also look at it a little bit different that if you have the diagnosis or a diagnosis, okay, <laughs> that's just interesting information, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a full truth. Yes. And I think if I hadn't identified so strongly with my diagnoses, that would have been true for me. And if I didn't see my students and others and see people self-diagnosing on social media and identifying so strongly with these as if they were proven, then it wouldn't be a problem. But there isn't that skepticism. And what pathological calls for is just education and awareness and empowerment of all of us. Um, and, And basically saying that we can do this differently on our end. We can't wait for psychiatry or the mental health system to do it differently. They had a decade to revise or reform the DSM and the new edition that's coming out. They haven't made any significant changes to the issues that arose previously. So we have to do it by knowing the truth. And then we can choose. Do you accept the diagnosis? Do you not? Do you use it for what it's worth? Take what you can use and leave the rest. So, yeah. I think that the normalizing and and the normalization and validation of mental health, right? Like that each of us has a right to mental health, just like each of us has a right to physical health, you know, and that, that, that has not really been recognized, right? Mental health is something we shouldn't talk about. I think that's somewhat true. What I feel has actually happened is that we've psychiatrized uh, our language and we anxiety, the emotion is equal to anxiety, the disorder, depression, the emotion is equal to depression, the disorder. And although I think we're talking about mental health a lot. Certain diagnoses have become socially acceptable. Other diagnoses are not. So anxiety and depression are one thing. ADHD is one thing. But when you get into schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, there's so much bias there and so much stigma. So I don't know that we've really, I think we've we're, we're doing it somewhat. We're, we're making steps toward that. And I think it's well-intended in the sense that what you're saying, which is so valid, is we deserve to be able to say, I need an emotional day or a, a mental health day in the same way that we do a physical health day. And that's completely valid. But we can talk about mental health without talking about mental health diagnoses. Yes. And I'm not sure that we're really teaching our children how to, or our teenagers or each other, how to experience emotion and how to experience hardship without giving it a diagnosis. And it's something I did not know. I was in a partial hospitalization program and I remember sitting in this room with all these other people who were there and we were given an emotion wheel. Have you ever seen that? I have. (laughs) I've worked in those places. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, you know, they have about a hundred, it looked like a hundred emotions to me. And I thought, you're kidding me. I, I don't know any of my emotions. I couldn't have told you. I was living in such an onslaught of emotion at all times and, and really could barely keep it together. So to be able to identify an emotion was way beyond me. And I think it would be, it would behoove us to talk more about emotions and how do you identify them and how do you process them especially now with the pandemic and what everyone's going through, as opposed to going straight to diagnoses. I agree. The diagnoses were a diagnostically happy society, right? If we want, we yeah. need to put a label on it. Yes, we really do. And, and I understand it. I was searching for the answer desperately and I tried everything. I meditated, I <laughs> yoga, I, <owned laughs> I did it all. I mean, for 30 years, Chinese herbs and vegan. And I mean, everything you could think of, I tried. I was very actually resistant to medication. I was the type of person who wouldn't take aspirin and didn't take my first medication until I was in my 30s. So I was about 20 years in before I even took a psychotropic medication, which is why my book is so different. I feel like I'm very much telling the story that so many have experienced. Often mental health memoirs are so extreme and they are someone, you know, and my situation became extreme, but it is also one that I think a lot of people can identify with and a lot of parents see in their children. But yeah, I was not, I definitely tried everything not to avoid a label, but my first, the first label I accepted or the first diagnosis I received. So I was given Valium when I lived in New York and was essentially diagnosed with anxiety, but that was from my primary care physician. And that's the other thing I think it's really important to talk about. When these conversations come up, they tend to be anti-psychiatry. I am absolutely not anti-psychiatry. I'm still on medication. I love my medication. I am grateful for my medication. (laughs) I want a t-shirt that says I love my medication. Uh, But I respect my psychiatrist, whom I still see and he respects me and has actually said that all medical residents should read my memoir to understand what it's like to be on the other side of the DSM. Um, So I'm not along those lines at all. And the majority of my diagnoses came from my primary care physicians. They are actually prescribing 80% of all antidepressants. Oh, but we should also wait, hang on, Sarah, we should add the other tidbit that for women, it's not just the primary care physician, but it's coming from the gynecologist. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so, and these are people with, to say limited, limited to no experience or training in diagnosing psychiatric disorders. Uh, Most, or the typical medical school, it's about 16 weeks of their residency and it's spent inpatient with the most extreme conditions um, and cases. So we're really, I think the primary care physician aspect hasn't been dealt with. And it's something I also hope my book will really bring to light and help people talk about. Because it's in some ways, at this point, we are really getting our diagnoses from primary care physicians or ourselves. People are going in and asking for diagnoses. And as I said, I understand the desire for a diagnosis. I was searching for an answer And it would feel like an answer, kind of like when you have an itch, it would feel good at first. And then it was, would just come back and continue to itch. And so the diagnosis really never satisfied. It never 
led me to where I needed to go. And it just so happens that I was, as I was telling you, very, uh, I was suicidal at that point. I was, um, had a falling out with my psychiatrist. I was out of medication. He wouldn't renew my prescription. Ooh. It was a terrible situation. Oh, that sounds horrible. Both my therapist and my psychiatrist at the time, he did both. And luckily my sister, the other hero of the book found a psychiatrist for me. I went to see him and he and I talked, I told him I was shaking. I was absolutely barely a shell of a person at that point. And at the end of our 27 minutes together, I waited for him to diagnose me. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my brain exploded. It was like, <laughs> what? Uh, no one knows what I have, actually. And he started, you know, he booked me for another appointment. And he said, we're just going to see. Let's just keep going. And he renewed my prescriptions and gave me what I needed so that I didn't go through withdrawal again, which I had gone through um, psychiatric medication withdrawal horribly. Which is terrible. I mean, that's, yes. that's, that's suffering. It is extreme suffering. I, I've never experienced anything like SSRI withdrawal. It was brain zaps and brain shivers. And it was unbelievable panic attacks. Like I've, and I've had my share of panic attacks. It was really incredible. At the same time, I think we tend to pill shame is something that's been going on um, as of late and probably for a long time. The withdrawal community, I think they mean well, but there's this idea that somehow you are, you know, pharmaceutically pure or, you know, somehow more of a pure human being if you don't take psychotropic drugs. And I'm someone for whom I have very few side effects. They, I'm, I've been on them for 12 years. I can't go off them at this point. So they're working for me either because my, I'm dependent on them. My body is actually dependent on them or they're actually working. Right. And they, so, they, yeah, they it, fill it, the it, missing piece, right? That the link, it links a part of your chemistry to work properly. And even though they don't know how they work, I'm okay with true, that. True, true. So, I, I mean, there's nothing, there's no reason, I mean, to my understanding, and again, I'm not a medical doctor, but we don't know how aspirin really works, but we take that. So it seems to me that if we're in a situation where DSM diagnoses are essentially somewhat random, or they're being given in that way, then whatever treatment works for you, by all means, like let's let's support each other in that and, and allow us to feel like we're all doing the best we can because we're really in this together. And we are out of time. Sarah, thanks for being such a phenomenal guest. And thanks for sharing your heart and your work and your story with us. To learn more about Sarah Fay, please go to sarahfay.org. The book we've been speaking about today is Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Fay Author, on Facebook at Ms. Sarah Fay, and on Instagram, Sarah Fay Author. Sarah, thanks again. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> for having me, I should say. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Sarah Fay, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. 
Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>